Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Stuff Your Ears. We are a podcast of Bismarck Community Church, and here we will give you conversations, discussions, as well as sermons and thoughts and ruminations that all are aimed at helping us to live, or at the very least, to understand what it means to live as a faithful Christian in a world that's often not quite what we wish it were. Glad you tuned in. I hope you enjoy. And as always, if you have any questions, feel free to reach out. Um, also, I want to remind us that giving is worship. We, you know, we like to take the moment. And um, so let's read it together. Why do we give? We give because the love of money. thinking about the more we we actually have control over our hearts. Um, You can text any number of things to that phone number if you want to connect or ask questions or do something or serve. You can can text that. um, Let us know how we can help you do whatever it is you want to do. I I just created one that says if you text the word next steps, I guess the two words, next steps, there's a whole list of all these things that you can, um, you can let us know how we can help you. That's, that's really my hope. Um, Speaking of next week, we will have a potluck after the service. We're going to have a, we got a few people eligible to run as elder and deacon, and so we'll be kind of doing that next week a little bit. And So potluck and a quick meeting to elect them. So uh, be here for that after the service. We will not have discipleship class next week. We will today. Uh, so if you, if, you know, if you want to come right after the service, discipleship classes are everywhere, and, and next week they won't be. So, And then they will be the next week. But then Christmas Day and New Year's Day, we won't be doing discipleship classes either. So, And we are having Christmas. <laughs> we're having a worship service on Christmas Day. A good friend of mine that lives, he's, a, he's actually a church planter in Compton. And, and southern, like, Los Angeles, kind of the rough part of town. And, and he posted, I just, I just thought it was so funny, he posted on his Facebook. He said, if you go to a church that's canceling service on Christmas Day, on Sunday, Christmas Day, because it's Christmas Day, find another church. I don't always advocate that, but I thought that was pretty, well, yeah, pretty much my sentiment as well. It's Sunday, right? Anyway, I'm not trying to be nitpicky. I just thought it was funny. Today, we are going to be talking about a lady known as Rahab. You will see her story in, well, you'll see, first of all, remember, we're doing this this series that is the women in the lineage of Jesus. And not long after we met Tamar last week, and a little bit later, we will see in verse 5 of Matthew chapter 1, Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. We'll know facts, some of you will know Ruth. Ruth, we will meet Ruth next week. But Rahab is Ruth's mother-in-law. Well, people really know that. Um, and her full story can be found in Joshua chapter 2. So I'm going to flip there. You can tap there, flip there if you want to, whatever you got to do. I'm going to, probably just going to read it all and kind of highlight a few things again because I think we want to 
kind of get the general sense. Now, this takes place after Moses died. Kind of give you some kind of context for what we're going to read. Moses and the Israelites, they've wandered around in the desert now for 40 years and, and always been this promise of crossing the Jordan River and kind of inheriting the land of milk and honey. And so that, they, they've kind of been looking forward to that. Josh, Moses dies, Joshua takes over, and they begin this sort of military campaign to move in and take this, this land. And the first thing they see is, is a citadel, a big fortress city, called Jericho, that's right there on the, on the banks sort of of the river. And so this is what happens in Joshua chapter 2, is they're, they're thinking about initiating this, this conquest. And they've had a few big battles, and they've won them already on the other side of the Jordan. But now they've crossed the Jordan, and things are a little different. And Joshua sends two men secretly as spies, saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. Now, I spent a lot of time this week really searching everything I could find on something that has often been overlooked. Why did they stay at the house of a prostitute? I mean, there is, a, there is something here that we sometimes like typical, like clean up Christians, and we like to pretend. There's something going on here, right? There's, there's a few possible reasons other than what seems most obvious. But they chose to go to the house of a prostitute when they showed up in this city as spies. And I just want to point that out because I think it's something that we might just gloss over and not, not recognize. It, 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 that's what it says. And they lodged there, they lived there, they slept, they spent nights, probably plural, in this house of a prostitute. And it was, it was told to the king of Jericho, behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, True, they did come to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, they went out. It was a common practice. And if you've seen Lord of the Rings and Bree and the Prancing Pony, you know that at night you close the gates of the city because of the dangers that are out there. So they left. She's like, they left before the gates were closed. Now they're closed. And, and, and so, I don't pursue them quickly and you'll overtake them. She, but, verse 6, she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid out in order on the roof. So the men pursued them all the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut again as soon as the, the pursuers had gone out. Now, just a few things that are worth pointing out in the story. The stalks of flax, like, what is that all about? In the ancient world, flax, which is where we get flaxseed, linseed, linseed oil, all these things. I didn't know this till this week, but apparently linseed gives rise to the name linen. Because originally, linen, the, the fabric linen, is made from flax stalks. You soak it in water, you then lay it out like she did, dry it out, and then you can peel it apart and you get these fibers that you can weave into linen. So all of that to say, she's got all that going on on her, her roof. What, we're, what Rahab were just 
to kind of give context here, she is a prostitute with a side hustle. That's what she's doing. She's like doing everything she can to make ends meet. And she's drying out flax because she's weaving linen. And that's what's happening on her roof, which is very common practice. A lot of roofs in this era and in this region were flat. Many still are. And they would live up there, work up there. A lot of things happen on the roof. So she's laying this out to dry and she hides them on of flax. Before the men lay down, she came up on the roof and said to the men, I know, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard, we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea and what you did to the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan and Sion and Og and all these. We've already heard what God is doing. And it's melting our hearts. And I just think it's powerful to be able to to know that they're hearing what God is doing and it is shaping their affections, even if it's fear. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is in the heavens and above earth and on the earth beneath. Real quick, I'll often say this. The, these events and what's being reported here do not come in from a world or into a world view at this era in this particular place in time where the phrase there is only one divine being in existence like that would make no sense none whatsoever to any of these people like that's not the way they understood the world there were gods everywhere gods of the sun gods of the Rain, gods of the crops, gods of the, there was gods everywhere. What is unique about the Israelite understanding of God and, and, the way, and Rahab communicates it here so crystal clear. What is unique, what is astonishing is that she, what she says, the God in the heavens above and the earth beneath. Your God, what she says here in from modern colloquial English, what she says here to the spies is, your God commands all the gods. That's what she had come to believe. And that's what was startling. And she had realized that. And her people may realize it, though they're afraid maybe to change. She's not. She says, swear to me that I've dealt kindly with you. You will deal kindly with my father's house. Give me a sign. You will save alive my father, mother, brothers, sisters, and all who belong to them. Deliver our lives from death, and I will protect you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to help you save us. And the men said to her, yes. Basically, they say yes, but you can't tell what we're doing. And then she let him down by the rope, for her house was built into a city wall. Her house, we'll talk about that. Her house was built to a city wall, so she lived in the wall. So it was easy to let them down by a rope over the side. And she tells them, go, and, and they, they work out a deal. I'm not going to read all that. But she leaves a sort of a scarlet ribbon thing hanging in the window so that when, and that's the deal, when they show up, if, if everybody's in the house, then we won't destroy anybody in the house. But if they're outside of the house, we're going to, we, we, we can't protect them. But keep them in there, tie the ribbon, and, and everything will be safe. You'll be safe if you stay there. Not too unlike the Passover. 
fact, I think that's supposed to kind of remind us, right? These people, their parents anyway in Egypt, had had to paint the, the blood on the door and go inside. And God said, if you're caught outside, I, I can't help you, but stay inside, paint the door, and you'll be safe. And that's, that's pretty much exactly what they tell Rahab as a, mean of, as a means of being safe and being protected. Just a couple of things that I, I think are important in the story that, that, that stood out to me. The first is simply Rahab knew what she was committing herself to. In, in a, like I, I read that bit, 9 through 11, I know, I know that the Lord has given you the land. I know that your God is the God of the heavens and the earth. I am, I am aware of that. She knew what she was committing to. She knew what she was joining. And, and it's been pointed out, some of the commentators, depending on how you look at them, they, they, they don't all smile real fondly on Rahab because Rahab was a traitor. I mean, treason. She committed treason. She actually told, her king shows up and her king shows up and says to her house, Rahab, I want, I want to know about those spies. You need to send them out. She's like, oh, they're gone, while she's hiding them upstairs. She lied to the king. She committed treason. She's essentially selling out her entire community to death and protecting herself and her own. She's abandoning everything that she has known and everything that she has been a part of for her entire life. That is a reality. That's what she's doing. Selling it all out. Because she's aware of something greater. She's doing all of that to be a part of what God is doing in the world and around her. And willing to join his people instead of her own. Abandoning everything. And as a result, Rahab is mentioned, you know, some of us, by the way, some of us, by the way, I know, I know we see that line, Rahab the prostitute, right? We, oh, well, there you go. I want to point out the Bible never, never, it actually does, the Bible does judge Rahab a few times. She's listed, by the way, the only woman listed in Hebrews chapter 11, which is the great hall of faith. It's just a list of people who have been faithful, who have been over and over again, who have said, yeah, we trust God. She's in that list. James, the brother of Jesus, wrote a book where he said, we, can, we know Rahab had faith because of what she did. So she is judged, but she's judged very well. Never Never in this story or later, we're like, well, you know, prostitute. That's not what we hear. That's not the way the Bible treats her. It treats her as one of great faith. It treats her as one who trusted that what God was doing was worth abandoning everything. A couple of questions. Do we, do we trust or do we believe do we hope in, do we long for what God is doing around us right now? Do we look out and go, yes, God is doing some great things? Or do we look and go, oh, I don't know about that. I'm scared of this change. 
Oh, gee, we're, you know, the budget. I'm so frightened. Oh, gosh, the world's just going to hell in a handbasket, right? I mean, like, is that, is that how we look out? Or do we look out and go, wow, things are changing for the better in other places, right? Good things are happening. I am growing as a disciple. I'm, I'm, I'm changing. My people around me seem to be changing. I, I think God may be doing something good here. And I want to be a part of it. And then the, the other question is, what are we willing to abandon in order to become a part of what God is doing? Rahab, this great, faithful prostitute with a side gig, was willing to abandon everything. What are we willing to abandon? She left her people. She would become a part of the line of Jesus because she would become a part of this new people. What are we willing to change? Are we, are we so committed to, to staying comfortable that we wouldn't even imagine changing jobs or giving you know, the cost of a cup of coffee once a week to the church because, you know, I like it. I like my stuff right? Whatever. What are we willing to let go of? Are we really, are we willing to abandon things that we think will make us comfortable and happy as, in order to become a part of what God is doing? What do you need to abandon? One of the things we say is uh, two questions we should ask every sermon, and of course I don't do everything every time, I don't do anything every time except not in that, right? But two questions we should ask of every sermon is, what's God calling me to do, and will I do it? I rephrased them. But that's the questions. And I think many of us might hear, I'm, I'm just believing, I'm not, I'm not here to tell you what it is. I believe all of us might hear something in that. Rahab abandoned everything. What's God calling us to abandon? What's God calling us to leave behind? And here's the question, not from me, from the Spirit. Are you going to do it? Second thing to notice um, here is that God works in the margins, in the marginalized, in the weak. You've got, like, I'm, I'm literally we're talking about a prostitute with a side hustle. Like, poor. Uh, socially not exactly sort of the what we might call in our society the cream of the crop, right? Barely scraping by. She lives, this is fascinating, she lives in the city wall. Like her house, it says that, is built into the city wall. That li- that's like the only way to translate that for us is she lives on the wrong side of the tracks, that's what that is. In this world, to live in the city wall, that was the poor, the lower classes. Because, you know, I mean, you got money, you got means. You're not going to live the first place the invaders are going to hit when they show up at the city wall, right? That's the whole thing. The city walls are where the, you know, they don't matter so much, get shoved to so that the, the people with the wealth and the power can stay safe further in they got to trample all these other people before they get to me, right? That's the way it works. She is socially and geographically, literally at the city walls, marginalized. That's where it comes from. 
marginalized. They're on the margins because they're at the edges. She's marginalized. No power. Disrespected. She's an outcast. She's poor. And she's exactly where God shows up. Now, like I said, there could be a number of reasons. Maybe the spies show up at her house because it's on the city walls. It's easier to get in and out of. There were a lot of other houses along the city walls. I don't know. Maybe they show up at her house for the reason we all might assume. It doesn't matter. And as a matter of fact, the Bible doesn't even comment on that. It simply says God was working where everything looked by the status of the world dirty. Where everything looked broken, messy, no, 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 we don't want to touch that, right? That's exactly where God went to work. In a place where it all seemed hopeless. That's where he showed up. When we think about that, maybe one question is, where, where do you generally find yourself? Day-to-day life in the power structures of the world. Some of us are probably somewhere near the top. Pretty safe. Comfortable. Don't have to worry too much about things happening. I've been thinking a lot about this idea of power lately and what that looks like and what that means. Like, I think, and we're seeing, we see a lot of mistrust of the church because of abuses of power that have really happened in the church. Like, it is cultural. I see it all the time. It's real. I see people wounded by the church. I get it. And so much of that can be traced to a preservation of power. I see that in our entire world. I don't just see that in the church, by the way. I think it's a very human thing to want to make ourselves safe by using our power and authority and, and protecting it and preserving it and making sure that other people can't touch that. That's what we do. We just happen to do it in the church as well. And yet, we read last week what Jesus said, the one that exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And I believe, I believe that if we're at the top and if we, we feel like we're, then, then that is the place that God is calling us to humble ourselves, to, lay, to, to willingly lay down power. Because that's what Jesus did. To willingly lay it down. Others of us might feel like we're maybe at the bottom of the power structures. I don't have any control. I can't do anything. Everybody's always telling me what to do. They consider me less than, right? We feel a little marginalized, disconnected, unwelcome, unwanted, broken, there is a very good possibility, very good possibility because it's biblical, that God is more likely to be at work in and around you than he is at the governor's mansion, the White House, or the Capitol building. Because that's where God goes to work. 
around the marginalized communities. That's where he goes. One more thing. Where do you want to be? Where do you want to be? Christian, evangelical, maybe. Most of us probably consider ourselves somewhere in there. Where do you want to be? And this, this is going to be the real challenge for us, and I am committed to leading us through it the best I can the next couple of years. Listen to me, because the last six have been all about how do we maintain our power? That's not what we're called to do. That is not why we're here. That is not what Jesus did, and it is not what He called us to, and it's not what He calls Rahab to. She is a nobody. Where does she want to be in the power structures of the world? Wherever they put her. She's just doing what she's got to do with what she's got in front of her. We are called to lay that power down, not to hold on to it. I get that some of us are near the top in the power structures of the world. It's just the way it turned out, right? What are we going to do with that? What will we do with it? Will we join God where He's working, or will we be insistent on protecting ourselves? Years ago, there was a book came out called Experiencing God, and it always asked the question, remember, uh, you ask, you ask what, where is God at work right now, and then you go join Him. And so often, we do exactly the opposite. We say, I want God to work here, and then we go and do that. God is at work in the margins. He's at work among the marginalized. Always. And He's asking each and every one of us the question, do you want power, control, and safety, or do you want to join me where I'm working. And I think only, uh, only we can answer that. Let me pray for us. Jesus, you are good. You are working in us. You're working around us. You are so gracious and kind. <sighs> and, and so often we are, I know I am, timid, frightened, and just huddling in the corner, hoping that somehow I can maintain a little bit of the control that I thought I had, and, and I don't any, anyway. But would you help us to be people that can rest, to trust you, to join you wherever you go? Thank you for Rahab. What a gift to your people she was. Thank you that you don't, in your word, sort of disparage her, judge her. You merely tell her story and then point out her faithfulness. Thank you for that grace, because so many of us, whether in reality or just on some spiritual level, so many of us are prostitutes too. In fact, we all are, after something. We're selling ourselves to something for some other thing, all of us. And yet, when you tell our story, that's not what you'll hold up. You'll hold up the grace that we've been given. And I thank you for that. It's in your name we pray. Amen.